Season 2 of the Kraken Busters, where we are exploring the great sea monster crisis of 1987. This is episode 211, Pirate Radio. I'm Keith Pilly. So, last week it finally happened. As a few people in Washington had been asking, the Navy finally got let off the leash in the North Atlantic for Operation Treblehook. Under Admiral Matt Yellen, the combined U.S. Atlantic Fleet separated into task groups that were assigned to scour designated sections of the ocean of sea monsters. Using specially rigged sonar buoys to lure the monsters into a central location, the fleet pummeled them with special anti-sea monster munitions. This appeared to be having at least some impact when the entire fleet was abruptly redeployed to counter a nuclear-armed Soviet surface fleet that had been detected approaching the exclusion zone. This week, a standoff in the North Atlantic and a surprising pirate radio broadcast. Late in the evening of May 12th, Iceland time, the Soviet Red Banner Northern Fleet arrived en masse near the eastern edge of the North Atlantic exclusion zone. The edge of the zone was undefended, as the ADP vessels, mostly British, that had manned that side of the zone had steamed southwest, skirting the zone itself, to join the American fleet and, to be honest, to get away from the Soviets. By the time the Soviet fleet arrived, Admiral Yellen had managed to reconfigure the massed American vessels into a reasonable formation. The American and ADP vessels were split into two groups, each organized around a carrier battle group that contained two nuclear supercarriers surrounded by a ring of surface screening vessels. The Soviets, with only one active aircraft carrier, kept their ships in one massed formation around the Kuznetsov. In keeping with modern naval procedure, both fleets put up a robust screen of air cover as they approached each other. The Soviets were content to steam in circles at a point 300 miles east of the southernmost of the two American groups, but for fleets armed with missiles and scores of airplanes, 300 miles is practically nose-to-nose. Air commanders in both fleets worked hard to strike a balance between keeping their planes aggressively positioned towards the other fleet without being overly provocative. This delicate dance was complicated, of course, by the fact that it was being carried out on both sides by angry, aggressive young fighter pilots whose indoctrination to follow orders just barely reined in their natural inclination to accept the fight that they saw as clearly being on offer here. It was a tough, tense, knife-edge situation. Everyone in the fleet, in both fleets you have to assume, was aware that the last time there had been a naval standoff like this, in the Pacific off of the Kuril Islands during the Japanese Civil War, the world had averted all-out nuclear war by the barest of margins, when a change in momentum in the fighting on the Kurils allowed Adlai Stevenson an opening to order American ships to back away without losing much face. Now, following procedure... Yellen had a flight of attack planes, including some of the same A-7s that had previously been dropping flechette bombs on sea monsters, orbiting to the west, armed with nuclear-tipped anti-ship missiles, ready to be vectored east on an attack pattern at a moment's notice. It was taken as given among the American commanders that the Soviets were doing the same. Both fleets also contained several missile cruisers whose tubes were loaded with cruise missiles tipped with nuclear warheads. Yellen had no choice but to do this. Naval doctrine and the common sense of retaliatory self-defense demanded it. 
but he was also keenly aware, as were the people in Washington who at this point couldn't do much beyond sit and watch, that being in this hair-trigger mode meant that catastrophic escalation was possible at any point, and that it could be triggered by all kinds of stray-voltage elements at play, fighter planes getting entangled, a subsiding, hell, even possibly an ambiguous radar return that looked like a missile launch, but was actually just a flight of ducks or something. Now, on May 13th, 1987, most of the world had no idea that it stood on the brink of World War III. Since the standoff was happening far out to sea, in an ocean that had already been cleared of civilian traffic because of the sea monster infestation, there was no one to report on it to the rest of the world. True, there were some reporters on board a handful of British ships that had been absorbed into the American Armada, but their access to the outside world had always run through the ship's communication system, and that had been clamped down hard. The crisis was unfolding quietly, known only to people on the scene and nervous national security staffers in Washington and Moscow, and in the case of the President and his top staff, in Air Force One, taking off from Andrews Air Force Base as things went down. Instead, most of the world just went on about its business that day, unaware that anything major was going on. Sure, there'd been some weirdness in the news about the North Atlantic, but there was always some kind of back and forth the Americans and the Soviets were up to, and this just felt like more of the same. Most people shrugged it off and went on with their lives obliviously. I know I did, although I was in seventh grade at the time. Now, for a handful of people in Northern and Western Europe, and even some parts of Canada, Going on with their lives obliviously meant, in part, listening to Rockout Keflavik, a powerful pirate radio station that broadcast out of Iceland. Rockout Keflavik was unlicensed but tolerated by the Icelandic government because of the station's high popularity among cultural hepsters in Europe and Canada. The station was just about without peer when it came to playing great underground European new wave, including underground stuff leaking out of France and even Germany, where there was a surprisingly robust music scene thriving out of view of the authorities. With Rockout Keflavik, the government felt that the cultural cachet Iceland gained was more than worth tolerating the unlicensed station's flouting of broadcast licensing restrictions. So, on the 13th, people all over Rockout Keflavik's extensive listening area had just finished enjoying the Belgian singer Plastic Bertrand's post-punk classic Saplan Pour Moi, when DJ Gunnar Sigurdsson stopped the flow of music to address the listening audience. Although DJs usually spoke Icelandic on the station, Sigurdsson spoke English, making it clear that he was trying to reach international ears. He said, quote, Hello now, listeners. I am afraid now I must stop with The Rock. I am very sorry. I know we all love The Rock. But sometimes bigger things happen, and we have to set The Rock aside for a little while. Friends, we are all trapped in a lie. I suspect many of you know it and have felt as trapped as I have. I feel we must end the trap. Friends, the waters around Iceland are full of a plague of sea monsters. A total plague of sea monsters. And the government insists that we must pretend otherwise to keep from scaring someone. Who? I don't know. Probably the Americans. As you know, my friends, I rock you out from Keflavik. Near Keflavik, anyway. But my family lives in Grindavik. Lived in Grindavik, I should say. Now most of my family does not live at all. Only my sister is still with us, and she lives on my couch. Because you see, friends, Grindavik is no more. It is, it was, 
a lovely little port town with many fishing boats. My sister worked on one of those fishing boats, the Sabjorn. Ten days ago, though, the Sabjorn was destroyed on its way out of Grindavik Harbor. Sabjorn was preparing to pass the breakwater when a great sea snake shot out of the water and wrapped itself around the boat many times, and then squeezed, breaking the ship into pieces. Many people in the harbor saw this. It is beyond question. The boat's crew spilled into the water. My sister was one of them. The serpent, it ate many of the victims. I don't know how my sister escaped. An enormous jellyfish was also in the water, catching crew members in its tentacles and consuming them. Somehow, my sister Sigrid escaped it, it and the giant sharks. All I know is that I'm happy that she escaped. After the attack, the people in the town, including my parents, called the police, called the Coast Guard, called everyone they could think of. And quickly, men from the government came and told everyone most sternly that they must not breathe a word of this, on pain of jail. It was terrible, they said, and the government would see to it that everyone was compensated. But they must keep it a secret to prevent a panic, they said. And to make sure, they said anyone who talked would go to jail immediately under wartime rules. The people of Grindavik simmered against these rules. This was an outrage. But they didn't know what else to do. My parents begged me to talk on the radio about it. But I said that doing so would put me in jail. And then three days later, a giant crab emerged from Grindavik Harbor. Enormous. A body larger than a house. Legs the size of light poles. Claws the size of a city bus. A great big conga crabby. A true king crab. I guess. This king of crabs went crazy attacking the town. It crushed boats in the harbor. It crushed the harbor facility. It crushed buildings. And when people tried to fight it off, it crushed them. My mother and father died this way, pinched to death by this stinking crab, while they tried to fight it away from destroying their house. Only my sister escaped. The army showed up later, she said, but their bullets bounced off of it. It only left when it got bored, or maybe it was full after eating the people of Grindavik, including my father and my mother. So here we are, my friends. I suppose now I will go to jail for breaking the rules. But the world must know. Maybe my sister will go, too. She is okay with this. I talked to her last night. She agrees. We must talk. This cannot be a secret any longer. The world must know. So, my friends in England, and Ireland, and France, and Canada my Norwegian friends, my Spanish friends, know that the sea monsters are back and the waters around Iceland are full of death. Know that. And that's where Sigurdsson broadcast ended, cut off abruptly. As the American and Soviet fleets stood each other off on the southern fringe of the sea monster exclusion zone, Sigurdsson's broadcast touched off a firestorm. A buzz among the cognoscenti in the listening area began almost immediately. Journalists in London and Paris were making calls within half an hour, with the feeding frenzy spreading to New York shortly after. It was late in the evening in Western Europe when Sigurdsson spoke, late afternoon in New York by the time the word got there. So there were hours before anything could appear in print, and there was nothing confirmable to report on the U.S. evening TV news broadcasts. But this just sort of built up journalistic pressure as reporters called sources both in government and in maritime industries and got either evasions or obvious stonewalling. The pressure built further as reporters throughout the West called each other, swapped stories, and recognized that everyone was getting the same runaround. 
Attempts to reach Gunnar Sigurdsson in Iceland dead-ended quickly, which only further fanned the flames. The entire Western journalistic establishment could tell that an enormous story was about to break, and it was just a question of who got someone on the record first. Tim Kraus of the Washington Post won the race. Thinking he might be able to call in a favor from an old acquaintance, Kraus called Colorado Senator Hunter S. Thompson, chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, with whom he had worked before Thompson left journalism for politics. Kraus hoped at best to get Thompson to give him some kind of pointer on background, unattributed. Thompson, by the way, was the author of the novel Prince Jellyfish, which had been appropriated as the name of one of the few primary class sea creatures observed in the new outbreak. Um, weird circularity. Anyway, the voluble Thompson, who, if you'll remember, had been fully briefed in on the North Atlantic situation by Juliana Burke a few days before, was extremely displeased with the state of things, and had apparently decided that enough was enough, and that it was his duty to alert the public, regardless of the consequences. The statement he gave Krauss was remarkable. Krauss won a Pulitzer just for prompting it. Quote, You're goddamn right there, sea monsters up there. At least 6,000 square miles of ocean, absolutely infested with the goddamn things. Squids, octopuses, jellyfish so goddamn big they'll eat a man. Goddamn shark that jumps out of the water and eats fighter planes. It's every fucking sailor's nightmare, and it's straight out of 1947, and Kennedy's brilliant goddamned idea is to put all his energy into blaming the Russians for the North Atlantic being cut off. It's madness. Fucking degenerate madness. In a sane world, he'd be put out to sea on a fucking ice floe for this, him and his idiot brothers, after people beat him in the kidneys with birch branches until they pissed blood. Jesus Christ, are we in a fix with that trio of idiots running the country in a goddamn sea monster crisis. No, no, no. Go ahead and use this. I don't give a damn. They can try to string me up by my balls and see how far they get. The people need to know. The people need to know. End quote. Krauss's story led the front page of the Washington Post the next morning, and the crisis entered a new public phase. Finally, this is the phase that those of us who were on the outside looking in back then can remember happening. In the meantime, the two fleets continued to eyeball each other across the North Atlantic with all their weapons armed. And that is where we're going to leave it for this week. Join me next week as the standoff in the North Atlantic escalates. Thanks, and be well. Bitches!